Hello and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views with Phil Dave, John Kay and me, Clive Roslin. Coming up, we will be speaking to Paul Charney, the chair of the Zionist Federation, about the news that the Home Secretary Sajid Javid is to issue a full ban on Hezbollah, which will hopefully be announced at next week's Conservative Party conference. We will hear from Peter Mason, who is the National Secretary of the Jewish Labour Movement, following the conclusion of the very eventful Labour Party conference. And we'll also be hearing from one Catherine Raingold, who will be telling us why she is raising money in memory of her late parents. Believe me, a truly inspirational story that you don't want to miss. But before all of that, with a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past week, here's Vivian Krieger. And we begin with Jeremy Corbyn at the Labour Party conference, where he addressed a Friends of Palestine group, telling them his party would recognise Palestine as soon as they took office. The opposition leader threw his support behind a two-state solution to Middle East peace, with a secure and viable Palestine alongside Israel. He also attacked Donald Trump for moving the US embassy to Jerusalem. And a Jewish Voice for Labour meeting at the conference had to be cleared after a bomb hoax. The JVL was showing a film which attempted to show how the anti-Semitism row is used to censor pro-Palestinian support for Mr Corbyn, which is strongly disputed by the mainstream Jewish community and some Labour members. The Board of Deputies said of the hoax that it underscored the need for all parties to take anti-Semitism seriously. And still at the conference, hundreds of Palestinian flags were flown on the main floor as delegates passed a motion after a debate demanding a freeze on arms sales to Israel and an investigation into the deaths of Palestinians on the Gaza border. It was the only international issue to have a dedicated debate after it was chosen by constituency Labour parties with 188,000 votes. The second choice had been Yemen with just 790 votes. Back to the Labour leader who is being sued by a pro-Israel blogger who was accused by Mr Corbyn of being very abusive towards the Palestinian ambassador, Professor Manuel Hassassian. The blogger, Richard Millet, is seeking £100,000 in reputational damages over Corbyn's now infamous remarks back in 2013, including about Zionists not understanding English irony. And finally, UK exports to Israel were up 75% to £2.6 billion in the first half of this year. Ahead of Brexit, there have been strong signs of mutual Israeli interest in Britain, with a third more Israeli firm setting up here since the referendum two years ago. Barry Grossman from the Trade Department of the British Embassy in Israel said Israeli companies realise the next year presents a huge opportunity to create new contacts in the world's fifth largest economy. Viv, thank you very much indeed. And let us start this episode of The Jewish Views in traditional fashion with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. And you may be surprised to learn that there is only pretty much one story that is dominating it once more. Justin Cohen, the news editor for Jewish News, joins us to go through it with us. And Justin, I fear... We are going to be speaking about the Labour Party conference and in particular the headline on the front page that reads One State of Mind. Yes, I spent the last couple of days in uh, sunny Liverpool, and I don't say that sarcastically. It really was sunny up there. I didn't know these things happened. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but that's like, that is such a southern view, yeah. isn't it, really? <laughs> Stereotype. <But accurate>. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly off the point, though. Yeah, so I was there for the Labour Party conference, of course, and as we expected, anti-Semitism and the party's relationship with the Jewish community was front and centre for many people. 
the reason for this front page is the debate that took place on the second day of conference on the main conference floor about Palestine. This followed a vote of party delegates of the constituency Labour parties about what priority debates they wanted to have. And Palestine came up as one of them. It was the only international issue that made it onto the main floor in terms of a dedicated debate. And throughout this debate, there was a sea of Palestinian flags on display and very much reflected, I think, what was a not a particularly balanced debate, it has to be said. Uh, I think the party has to be credited for in some way, and also Rhea Wolfson, who's received a lot of criticism from within the community, she chaired that debate. And actually, the language that was used could have been a lot worse. I've heard a lot, a lot worse, with the exception of one speaker. People did use language that was perfectly respectful and was, was reasonable. However, and there's a big however, there was a total lack of mention of Hamas, of terrorism, of any t- anything to do with any responsibility on the Palestinian leadership side or any obligations that they need to, to follow through on. Instead, the conference passed a motion that called for an immediate freeze on arms sales to Israel, that called for an independent investigation into the deaths that took place earlier this summer on the Gaza border, and just was lacking in balance. If anyone had just come into that debate and knew nothing about this topic, it was almost like, I don't know, like, like the Palestinians had no responsibility, like Israel was all, was, was all evil and was, was responsible for this whole thing. Hearing what you said, Justin, on page four, you have an article headed, Watson takes pride in LFI. And then you say he's proud of those who attended Labour Friends of Israel conference event and insisted the party has a moral obligation to rid itself of anti-Semitism. So it's not all doom and gloom then? No, there, there were a couple of bright spots, one of them being the speech by Emily Thornbury on the conference floor, where she was very clear on the issue of anti-Semitism and anyone calling for the, the removal of Israel. But yes, this story about Tom Watson, he spoke at the annual LFI reception, a something that's usually a preserve of the leader of the party, but for the f- last couple of years hasn't happened. So Tom Watson, I have to say, it really stood out. His language was a kind of a verbal embrace of the community. He went out of his way to, for example, describe how it was great to see the ambassador there, the Israeli ambassador, Mark Regev. He also spoke about the importance of LFI's work. He said that he's proud of everyone that attended that reception. And I have to say, it was a bit of a bubble in that room, a bubble of support for Israel. It was a packed room and no trouble, has to be said. And Tom Watson received, a, as you can imagine, a rapturous response. Did you, when you were in the conference hall and you saw all those Palestinian flags and there was that debate on Palestine, did you feel fear? I have to say, I didn't personally. I felt that this was ridiculously one-sided, ridiculously one-eyed, and a lack of appreciation of the context in the region. And also has to be said, the mere appearance of a, if it had been a few flags, to me wouldn't have been any issue at all. The fact that there was no Israeli flag, the fact that I can't imagine that it would that anyone would have unfurled an Israeli flag in that environment. Why? Um, Why do you think they would have been lynched almost? Well, not lynched, but it was wasn't hard. It was hardly a welcoming environment for supporters of Israel, and it, it, it was the lack of balance in the whole thing. The fact that it was a sea of Palestinian flags, the fact that the debate didn't mention any of the other side, any of the context that that made it 
a troubling environment for me. You also run a poll about which party is the most nasty, if you like. Who is this poll aimed at? Who who did you talk to? Oh, it was a it was a Comrades poll for the Jewish News. So it was of two thousand and two members of the British public of, of voters. So um, not necessarily Jewish. No, not not Jewish at all. A representative sample of the population. What was very interesting is is the fact that we asked questions specifically about the nasty party, which is a, a tag traditionally associated with the Conservative Party, was a term that was first used, I believe, by Theresa May about her own party at the Conservative Party conference 16 years ago. And it's interesting here that British people, British voters now believe that by 31% that Labour is the nasty party. Still the Conservatives out in front with 34%, but they're more or less neck and neck. And for the Labour Party, party that prides itself on being the party of anti-racism, that's pretty worrying. And not to mention, of course, that it means that British voters, by and large, OK, fair enough, there are other political parties out there that indeed people do vote for. But let's be honest, a lot of the time it's a two-horse race. Well, if the two front proverbial horses are the ones who are deemed nasty, it doesn't leave a great deal of confidence in our British politics, does it? I I think we we presented the option for the Conservatives or Labour or don't know. We didn't present UKIP, for example, as being an option or any other party. So I'm sure some people would have chosen chosen them. That's good to clarify then. Okay, well, in that case, let's move on to something a little more positive, shall we? And as the country looks towards Brexit in March next year, and everyone is up in arms worrying about what is going to happen to trade and to the economy should there be a no deal with the rest of the European Union. Some good news as far as relations between the UK and Israel is concerned. Yeah, as we've reported on a number of occasions, the trade relationship between the two countries is at an all-time high. Once again, evidence of that with these new figures, which show that uh, in the first half of the year, trade was at 2.6 billion, which is a 75% increase on the same period last year. A staggering increase, really, again, around the high tech sector, around science, you know, trade going in both directions. And it, it, it is a good sign as the two countries have a a working group in place to look at the options for a trade deal. And certainly, I'm sure Israel will be among the first tranche if both sides have their way. And presumably, though, if there was a Labour government and they didn't sell arms to Israel, that could have an effect on our trade balance in terms of also Israel perhaps looking to France or America to buy arms and and weapons, and it will affect on employment in this country. Yeah, I I think that there would be a a knock-on effect of any reduction in trade potentially. Uh, Mark Regev, in his speech to the LFI reception this week in Liverpool, spoke about the current defence and security relationship that some people are trying to tackle with with this targeting arms motion. If that were to happen, the fact is that there's a huge amount of security cooperation between the two countries that keeps both countries and their people safer. And, and you know, it, it, Mark Regev asked, who, who are these people trying to harm? An interesting question, one of which that I wonder whether or not we will ever really know the answer to. But one way or another, I'm afraid that is where we're going to have to leave it for a look at the paper for this week. Justin Cohen, news editor of The Jewish News. Thank you very much indeed. Don't forget, you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. 
You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Well, the Liberal Democrats have had their conference. Now Labour has had its conference, this time in Liverpool. How did it go? Well, there were speeches by Jeremy Corbyn making reference to anti-Semitism, as well as the Shadow Foreign Secretary, Emily Thornbury. Peter Mason is National Secretary of the Jewish Labour Movement. He joins us now. Peter... There are those at the end of the conference, whether they were flying those Palestinian flags or not, who would say that on the whole it was a good conference. What would you say? Well, I think the conference this year was a bit of a mixed bag. I think you have to consider the context that led into it, particularly for Jewish members of the Labour Party, after a very difficult summer of anti-Semitism leading from the enough is enough protests at the beginning of the year. I think there were great expectations of challenges and controversy. I think some of those things happened. But likewise, as we kind of reach the end of conference, we, we look back on what could have been could have been a situation that was much worse, but likewise not much better either. Jeremy Corbyn said to the Jewish community, We are your ally. Do you believe him? Well, the, the the challenge with, I think, Jeremy Corbyn and the leadership of the party is one that we saw very recently at the last meeting of the party's ruling executive that finally, after a very long battle, adopted the IHRA definition, the internationally recognized definition of anti-Semitism, begrudgingly, albeit, where Jeremy again attempted to attach a very long two-page rider, a two-page condition on what constitutes anti-Semitism. Now, it's one thing for the party to make very clear that they are the allies of the Jewish community, but ultimately Jeremy Corbyn is standing to be prime minister. And I think it would be fair to say from all fronts that he's got a much bigger job to do to prove to the Jewish community that he's sincere. There are those sitting near the front like Lord Alf Dubbs, who was on the kinder transport, who probably would give him the benefit of the doubt. In fact, Alf Dubbs was referred to in Jeremy Corbyn's speech. Do you think Alf Dubbs is perhaps being a little naive? Well, I think in the coming years, we are going to have a series of elections in which the Labour Party is going to have to go to the Jewish community and ask for their support. And it's going to matter in places like Hendon and Finchley and Golders Green and Chipping Barnet and places in Manchester, Leeds and elsewhere. And the Jewish community and Jewish voters are sincerely going to have to make decisions as to who they want to lead our country. And I really doubt that until Jeremy himself is able to apologise for his words and deeds in the past, and sincerely start to use the personal pronouns I, and rather than the collective pronouns of, of, of we and us that tend to you know, shift responsibility to the wider party, it's not really until then that people are going to consider him within the Jewish community to be a prime minister. But equally, in the, out there in broader society, there are, there are plenty of people, and, and quite rightly, those who would say that the way the party's handled this and the way that Jeremy's handled this over the past uh, six months has been dreadful. And, you know, we've spent all of this time talking about anti-Semitism when we should be having conversations about the future of our country, about Brexit, about taking on the Tories. Was Emily Thornbury more convincing when she spoke about anti-Semitism? Well, interestingly, in Emily's speech, she was she was very unequivocal. She led into the section on her speech, making it very clear that 
those on the fringes of our party who try to use Palestinian solidarity as a cloak for anti-Semitism are fascists. And fascists have no part in the party and need to be expelled. Now, in order for that to come true, the party's going to need to do a a sincerely a, a, a bigger piece of work and, and give it the energy and the resources and the focus that it needs in order for that statement to come true. It's the speech that Jeremy perhaps should have given. This isn't really going to go away, is it, until eventually Jeremy Corbyn steps down as leader? Look, in an ideal world, anti-Semitism wouldn't be, wouldn't be an issue. We would be able to focus on the issues that matter to the country, whether it's Brexit, whether it's uh, housing, whether it's the NHS, whether it's all of the issues that, ironically enough, were not prioritised by Labour Party members that led to the debate on, on Palestine. Now, we need a much greater focus on the issues affecting the country than forever being in an ongoing battle over anti-Semitism. And most importantly and sincerely, the person that could have the greatest impact, the person for whom could show leadership with the party grassroots is Jeremy himself. Prime ministers step up to the plate and prime ministers lead and, and they give us a sense of the future direction of the country, but also society. And, and Jeremy needs to realise that, that that's his important role for him, prime minister or, or leader of the opposition. Do you feel, though, that the anti-Semitism row isn't necessarily going to affect the Labour vote because an awful lot of people who are not either Jewish or supportive of the Jewish community are largely indifferent, and therefore that won't make whatever their decision is when it comes to the next election as to who to vote for. Well, I think if the electoral results from places like Barnet and Manchester demonstrate, clearly in areas of significant Jewish population and and areas where people are more connected to the Jewish community, whether that's through friends, family, colleagues and others at work, and socially, that it does have an impact because the closer people feel to the Jewish community and understand understand its issues and understand its concerns and understand its fears, the more people realise just how damaging this has become within the Labour Party. Now, I've got every hope, actually, that, that when the British public look at the Labour Party and see the challenges of anti-Semitism, they realise and, and they understand that racism quite simply isn't British and anti-Semitism isn't British. And we, as a country, have historically defended minorities and protected minorities and, and celebrated minorities. And that when it comes to it, that people will, will actually realise that there is a choice and that we, we ought to be having a better choice, a, a party that, that, that doesn't have consistent problems with anti-Semitism, that is on top of all that it can do to set the tone in which debates should take place and, and, and get us beyond what is what has been a dreadful six months, a dreadful two years. Now, I don't know where you stand as far as Zionism is concerned, and frankly, I don't necessarily need to know, but I do wonder how it makes you feel as someone who is so intrinsically involved in the Jewish labour movement, seeing all of those Palestinian flags displayed all over the the conference of the party that you wholeheartedly support. How does that make you feel personally? Herein for Jewish labour members is the most existential challenge. Conference hall for me felt a bit like Labour Party meetings do in many circumstances, in which before I and others are taken seriously about our views on anything from housing to NHS to adult social care and the really important issues that matter, have to somehow take a test whereby 
we have to demonstrate before we are taken seriously our views on Israel-Palestine. Now, I am a passionate Zionist. I am a passionate, passionate socialist Zionist. So you must I have hated a- seeing those Palestinian flags there. I've got nothing, you know, nothing against Palestinian solidarity. I believe that the Netanyahu government is doing things that we should not be proud of. You know, I passionately believe that in a democratic society like Israel, that the left in that country should be able to organize and should be able to put forward a left alternative to the incumbent government. What that doesn't mean in the Labour Party context is that I am any less passionate about the intrinsic connection that the Jewish community has to the state of Israel, be it through shared culture, through shared faith, through shared family, friends, socialization, in the exact same way that the Labour Party understands other minority communities' connection to their diasporas. The Labour Party would no more dream of asking somebody from India or Pakistan or from Somalia or from Syria to take a test on the politics of that country before allowing them and providing them a space in which to politically organize in this country. And quite frankly, for me, on the floor of Labour Party conference, it was incredibly uncomfortable because the imagery that came from that conference was in order to be a Labour Party member, in order to be taken seriously on these issues, you must come to party conference with a professed opinion. And that cannot stand because the party's consistent policy, even today, even following Labour Party conference, has always been that we stand for a two-state solution, for a secure Israel and for a viable and secure Palestine. And that has to run through the party at conference, at local level, through our policy in Westminster, and my fear from, from this party conference was that was not the message that came across. The chances of the Labour Party gaining government means that perhaps, and I know this from many different Jews, perhaps many Jews will leave this country. Synagogues are being protected much more, even more than it was beforehand in the last year. And people are talking about it. I was talking to a rabbi just the other day who said he was sometimes frightened of wearing his kippah. Now, if the Labour Party wins, then what happens? Well, I think we've got to be vigilant, but I also think we have to be incredibly careful. Now, as Jews, we're rightly concerned about anti-Semitism, both in the UK and across Europe. And it has been demonstrable over the past few years of the threats that we face as a community here and here and across Europe. Quite rightly, people will, will forever be questioning their safety and wondering what the future holds. Now, you know, this is a challenge across Europe about populism in politics, whereby politics increasingly feels like that we are reaching the extreme left and the extreme right. And it's absolutely the purpose of political leaders in this country to demonstrate to minority communities, and particularly the Jewish community who feel this so viscerally, that there is an alternative, that there is hope and that there is safety, and that we should be able to work our way through these challenges and these problems. Now, you know, it's my hope and it's my, you know, my dear, like sincerest hope and dream that we can overcome these issues and that we can have the assurances that the Jewish community need, that they will continue to be safe. And we will have to tackle every problem and every issue as we as we face it. So a tough time ahead still for Jewish people in the Labour Party. Peter Mason from the Jewish Labour Movement, many thanks indeed for joining us. Thank you for having me.
If you'd like to get in contact about any of the stories you've heard on this show, then we'd love to hear your Jewish views. Email studio at jewishviews.co.uk. On Facebook, go to facebook.com slash the Jewish Views. On Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. Or you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Now, Home Secretary Sajid Javid is set to use the Conservative Party conference to announce the full prescription of Hezbollah. Now, this is not just the armed wing, but also the political wing as well, which The Jewish News in particular have been campaigning for for months. Now, someone who I strongly suspect will welcome this news is our next guest. It is Paul Charney. He is the chair of the Zionist Federation and joins us in the studio now. Paul, I suppose first things too, how do you react if this is indeed the case? This is phenomenally, belatedly phenomenal news. This is something that we've been campaigning for, the Zionist Federation, for many years. The US, Canada, Netherlands, UAE have all prescribed Hezbollah in its entirety for many, many years. For some reason, political strength in our country, in Britain, hasn't been there in order to do so. We were promised by Boris Johnson, we were promised by Amber Rudd, but it's taken a new set of leaders, Sajid Javid, to come in as Home Secretary, who promised he would do this alongside the support of the Foreign Secretary, Jeremy Hunt, in order to push this through. Now, what seems slightly unusual about the setup we have here in terms of the current understanding and the current allowances as far as Hezbollah is concerned is we make a distinction between the political wing and the military wing. And as you've rightly identified, other countries never have. Why do you think it has been that the UK has seen a difference for so long? Listen, I, I could be cynical, but but trying to understand the UK's political point of view is that in order to try and deal with Lebanon's semi-elected official government, so they would have to deal with Hezbollah in, in some part. But how do you politically deal with a terrorist organization? Let's remind ourselves, Hezbollah was formed in the 1980s by Iran in order to, a Shiite militant group, in order to rid Lebanon of all its foreign entities, including France and the US, and then continued to rid Israel. But once it done that, once that had happened, guess what? It continues. It continues to to its terrorist activities throughout. So the UK, in its effort to be either peacemaker at best and simply spineless and weak at worst, have not dealt with Hezbollah as the other countries have. Now, the problem is, Paul, and I know that I've asked you this before when we've spoken about this very subject, but a lot of people, whenever it comes to matters of this nature, always bang the drum about free speech. They always say, well, hang on a second. Who is anybody to say that just because it doesn't fall in line with the typical views of the Jewish community, why should it be that those who it does fall in line with should be stifled, should say, no, you're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to support Hezbollah and it will be fully prescribed. In essence, this is not just coming from the Jewish community. This has come from the community at large. This has been pushed by Sadiq Khan, our mayor as well. This has come from countries and and right-minded people around the world saying, we do not want to see Hezbollah flags holding a gun on the streets of London. Let's remind ourselves as well that they have adopted the Hitler Nazi salute as their welcoming salute, they have made it very clear that if all Jews were together in Israel in one place, 
we call this free speech, according to some, then let's rid ourselves of all the Jews in one simple go. So, uh, you know, you can take free speech to a certain extent, but we do not represent those values. The UK does not represent those values. Isn't it difficult, though, when you are dealing with an organization that was supposedly democratically elected within Lebanon? It, in fact, increased its vote at the last election and therefore could claim to represent people in Lebanon with what they would say would be a legitimate point of view. Democratically elected governments around the world have not always proven to be right, good, liberal, open, human rights followers governments. Now, we saw the Nazi party to a certain extent was democratically elected. We have countries around the world. You could say Iran, you could say Venezuela, Cuba, all of these are democratically elected. But let's remind ourselves that Hezbollah is a force to be reckoned with. They are hugely afraid of Hezbollah within Lebanon. And for them not to vote for Lebanon would also be an abomination. So I don't know how democratically elected they were. But even if they had the popular vote, what Hezbollah represent is not a value that we can allow ourselves as free speech on the on the streets of London. There might be those who would say, you've got to bring people together, you've got to negotiate. So in a way, are you not cutting off the possibility of reaching out to an organization that you, you know, disagree with fundamentally, but feel that if there is going to be some sort of longer term peace in that region, you've got to deal with people that you don't actually like? Well, put it this way. The way you deal with ISIS is not by reaching across the table because you're not going to get a hand extended back. The way you deal with Hezbollah, the way you deal with Hamas is in in very similar fashions. Now, if they were to put down their arms, if they were to preach some peace, if they were to say, well, we do want a country which can get on and in peace with its neighboring countries, then I'd, I don't care what they call themselves. I'd be very happy to sit down with them, but that's not what they preach. Well, as we see with the conservative conference, we're going to see a hand stretched out to the the Jewish community and the wider community by prescribing Hezbollah. And on that very subject, I wonder whether or not the cynic in us could question the timing of this. Because if you do refer to the Labour Party conference, you saw all of those Palestinian flags and you have seen obviously what has gone on with the Labour Party for the last couple of years. Could it just be that the Conservatives are almost using this to their advantage by saying, well, now is the time to do this because we will secure the rest of the Jewish vote. Now, whether or not that is going to make a difference to them at the next general election, who knows? But could we be cynical about the timing of this? You are always going to get those who are going to read into this in in different ways. But let's also remember that Hezbollah is a terrorist organization for one and for all. They don't isolate the terrorism to Lebanon alone. They are around the world. They also represent everything that is wrong with the Middle East. So, yes, it's the Jewish community and certainly Jewish New Zionist Federation and other organizations at the forefront of getting them prescribed. But that doesn't mean it doesn't affect everyone around the country. And this country is built on certain values. And these values should be upheld no matter what. Can you try and describe the sense of, shall we call it, relief, I suppose, which I think a lot of people in the community would feel if this ultimately means that we're one step nearer to not seeing the annual Al-Quds Day march, which is, of course, which is what's most synonymous with Hezbollah in this country anyway. And of course, where you paid reference just now to seeing the flags flying in London, that's the event that we are referring to with that. What would it mean to actually see that totally gone? 
Well, again, I don't understand why, again, it's only the Jewish community and, and, and certainly the strong Zionist community demonstrating against an Al-Quds mosque, which is established by Iran, which is anti-American and, and anti-West altogether. But yet it's just us standing at the forefront once again. So I don't understand why it is just us. But I, I don't see, I, I see this as a positive step to fight against that type of ideology and, and against terrorism. The Al-Quds mosque will probably, will continue. I don't see that ending. But again, as satisfied as we are that Hezbollah flags, that Hezbollah in its entirety will be prescribed, therefore Hezbollah flags will not be flown in the faces of the Jewish community and Israeli Israel supporting community, we are still not fully satisfied yet because we will now, now go to get to see new flags. And the flags that are currently still in the streets are the PFLP flags of the Palestinians with the full with the full uh, the whole of Israel in its flag, chanting from the river to the sea, which is something that the Al-Quds rally will continue to do, and that's calling for the entire destruction of the Israeli population. There is something that is very telling, and I, from the limited conversations I've had with people about this so far since this news broke, so many people so far have pointed out, and that is that it has taken a Muslim mayor and it has taken someone who was born Muslim as the Home Secretary to actually implement this. It does seem quite shocking in some weird way, almost as if because of being a minority community themselves, they can relate to some of the other minority communities, Jewish or non-Jewish, whoever it is, who have been crying out for this. So I, I see it as slightly differently. I, I'm proud, actually, to hear that it, it is a Muslim mayor and a Muslim home secretary that's, that's going to be the driving force behind this. Because we, as we've always been saying, and in Israel, we, we can live side by side, and we do along many, many of the, the uh, Muslims and Muslim countries that we do want to have peace with. And this shows that certainly we do have common ideals and common values, and it doesn't have to necessarily be a Muslim or a Christian or a Jew to to, to speak out for these values. But the, I mean, the other, the other point is that you must remember coming from a Muslim background, they probably understand a little bit better than the regular Middle England voter understands about terrorism and about the Middle East. Well, let us hope that this announcement does indeed happen at the Conservative Party conference. But for now, Paul Charney, chair of the Zionist Federation, thank you so much for speaking to us on The Jewish Views. Thank you, Phil. If you'd like any more information on any of the stories or the guests that you've heard in this episode of The Jewish Views, then go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And we've been joined by the producer and founder of the Whetstone Musical Theatre Group, Catherine Reingold. Catherine, you have an amazing, but at the same time, extremely sad story to tell us. What's it, how did all this begin? Musical theatre has always been my passion. I grew up always going with my parents and my sister to see loads of musicals. I think my first one was Annie when I was about nine years old in the West End. And then I just loved also to perform in them. So since a very young age, I've performed in lots of local amateur theatre. And then three years ago, I decided there was a huge gap in the market for women in my age group, which I would say is a 30 to 40 something in terms of musical theatre. And three years ago, I set up Whetstone Musical Theatre Group. And now you're producing? I'm producing Bad Girls, the musical. And the reason why you're doing it, though, there's a, there's a sad but amazingly 
moving story about why you're doing it. Yes, 10 years ago, my father passed from cancer very suddenly. I was pregnant at the time and he passed away when my youngest daughter was four months old. And I'm now raising money for the most incredible hospital I think we've got in England, a specialist hospital for cancer called the Royal Marsden Hospital. But lots of people don't realise that they also have a charity. So I'm raising money for the Royal Marsden Cancer Charity. And also you're asking for money because of what happened to your poor mother as well. Well, I actually, when I set up Whetstone Musical Theatre Group, it was three years ago, we put on our first performance, our first ever production of A Slice of Saturday Night, which was a huge success. And I set that up because my mother passed from multiple sclerosis three years ago. And I actually raised £1,000 three years ago when I set up Whetstone Musical Theatre Group. And what made you decide to do it this way? I actually think there's lots of people out there who love performing and I think just to lose yourself in a rehearsal space and to become someone else and to perform a different character is a huge sort of personal journey and a huge therapy for lots of people. So for me personally, rather than dwelling on the negatives and at such a young age having lost both my parents and bringing up two young children... I thought, I've got to turn it around. I've got to see the positives in this. You know, my family always, always faced huge struggles, but always saw the positive in anything. We didn't dwell on our, you know, sorrow. We didn't ask for pity. So I thought, right, I'm going to turn this around myself. And that's why I thought, right, I'm going to set this up. And that's what I did. And as a result, how did you get the cast and the people to come and sing and dance in your show? Because doing musicals, it must be very difficult. Yes, we had a quite a rigorous audition process in June. I mean, I've got a fantastic production team at the top. So I'm producer, but I've got two wonderful directors, a choreographer and a musical director. And we set up a open audition and people I advertise in on Facebook for Whetstone Musical Theatre Group and people contacted myself for the audition and people had to prepare for a song and some acting. And we all auditioned in front of everybody. And then, you know, we've got talented talented bunch of people there's 14 people in our cast and every single one of them is incredible and they're all amateurs or have you got some professional no all of us are amateurs none of us are paid some have a lot more experience than others some have trained at drama school but are not now professional actors or actresses but all of them can sing really well and all of them can act really well With the actual theatre company, are you the one who gets to play Simon Cowell? Are you the one who auditions the people (laughs) as they walk through the door and decide if they make it to the stage? Or is it a case of because it's voluntary, you can't really turn anyone away? Oh, no, we do turn people away. I do have the overall say. There's no committee because some local Amdram companies do have a committee and there's about seven or eight people who make final decisions. But I very much trust my directors and musical director and choreographer. So we all are very much involved in the end casting. But I do have the final say. But how does the day-to-day running of it actually work? Because production obviously doesn't just happen. A, A script has to be written. Choreography has to be coordinated. This is obviously all done on a voluntary basis, but it's a lot of work, make no mistake. And how does that all come together? It's a huge amount of work. And luckily, I'm a part-time social worker, so I do have a few spare days while my children are at school to sort that all out. I do a huge amount of work behind the scenes. The very first thing I need to do is actually apply for the licence because you can't actually put any amateur performance on without a licence. And from then on, I'm from props to rehearsal schedules to sorting out the band to everything. It's a huge amount of work. Because of your 
mother's illness, your father did an awful lot despite his illness in, in actually helping. And I think a lot of people that could resonate with because they know one parent who helped another parent despite how difficult it might have been for them. Actually, it was my, my father didn't have... My father passed away first. Mm. Uh, we always thought, actually, because my mum had MS since I was 11 years old, so I always envisaged, you know, holidays with my children, with my father there, you know, thinking my mother would pass away first. So my dad was my mother's full-time carer. So when he was diagnosed two days before my little one was born, for him, we'd, it just it threw us all because we thought, oh, my gosh, who's going to do everything? You know, we had to just start from scratch. And... MS is not just about physical stuff, it's also about cognitive stuff. So actually what was really difficult for the family at the time is when my father did have the terminal diagnosis, my mother's comprehension and emotional understanding of it was really difficult. So in one way, her MS was a blessing. It was sort of helping her not be so affected emotionally by it all. But for myself and my sister, we had to just do absolutely everything for her physically and mentally. And we, we brought in carers for her full time. And her, her wish always was never to go in a home. So when my father passed away, we respected that. And she actually, we put 24-hour care in and she passed away at home. And that was always her wish. It must have been a very difficult time for you. It was incredibly difficult. It was incredibly difficult. Luckily, I've got an incredibly supportive husband and in-laws and friends. And I'm incredibly close to my sister because we've, you know, since a young age, we've gone through Helen back. But I don't want it to be described as Helen back because we're also, as a family, we've had such lovely times. We've had fun together. My sister's kids are like brothers and sisters to my children. So, again, I'm not a negative person and we've just faced whatever we've got to face and we've yeah we've had more difficulty in our lives than I think most people in their 30s and 40s but we've come through it and musical theatre is what I love. You've sown such great strength I'm making gratitude. Could you tell us exactly when the production is happening and where? Sure it's at so the, lots of people might want to come now. Yeah it's at the Bull Theatre in Barnet. It's on Barnet High Street and it's really easy to get there by bus and Northern Line tubes. It's the 24th of October to the 27th of October we're doing four performances in the evening I would say it's 16 plus I wouldn't bring your children because there are some adult themes and all tickets are on sale on thebulltheatre.com Catherine Ringo thank you very much indeed and I wish you every success with the production thank you and now our rabbinic thought for the week this week it's from Rabbi Harvey Belofsky from Golders Green United Synagogue as the festival of Sukkot progresses we reach a climax of happiness and celebration. Sukkot is known as Zaman Simchatenu, the time of our rejoicing. It's the end of three cycles all at once. The festival cycle that began with Pesach, continued with Shavuot in the summer, and now ends with Sukkot, harvest festivals, celebrations of Jewish identity and history. It's the end of a year, and it's also the end of the Tishrei festivals, which began with Rosh Hashanah, the solemnity of Yom Kippur, and now the joy of Sukkot. But once Sukkot finishes, we have a rather enigmatic day called Shmini Atzeret. It used to be called the eighth day of solemn assembly. I never knew what that meant. But perhaps a better translation of the word Atzeret, which is, of course, on the eighth day from the beginning of Sukkot, is a time of stopping for reflection. The word Atzirah means stopping or pausing. It's not the only day in the Jewish calendar that's called Atzeret, but it is the primary one because it's the stopping point of all the festival cycles, a kind of nexus of completions of cycles. 
So what happens on Shemini Atzeret? Well, the rabbis decided it was a good time to finish reading the Torah, a celebration which joins the end of one cycle to another. That's fairly obvious. But the rabbis say it's an opportunity for God and the Jewish people to enjoy one final party together. But there's an obvious question about that. What happens when you spend a bit more time together? If it was hard to part before, it's going to be even harder to part now. So what does the extra party achieve? I think that the way we should think about it is that when we meet with God and we think about all the achievements of the festival season, what we achieved on Rosh Hashanah, thinking about God as sovereign and blowing the shofar, the introspection of Yom Kippur and the celebration of Sukkot, when we revisit that just for a little while, then we're able to take something much more powerful and meaningful back into real life after all the Chagim, the Yom Tovim, the festival season has finished. And that means while it remains difficult to part, we leave with something really tangible in hand, refreshed for a wonderful year of celebration and meaning and good Jewish spirituality. Thank you to Rabbi Harvey Belofsky from Golders Green United Synagogue with our thoughts for the week. And that's it for this episode of The Jewish Views. Thank you very much indeed to all of our guests, to Paul Charney from the Zionist Federation, Peter Mason, the National Secretary from the Jewish Labour Movement, and Catherine Raingold telling us why she is raising money in memory of her late parents. Thank you also goes to our producer Sue Greenberg and of course to you at home for listening. Do remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application and you can find information and details of all of our guests and indeed hear any of the previous episodes of this show by going to our website jewishviews.co.uk The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News but from me Phil Dave John Kay and me Clive Rosslyn we do hope you'll join us next time here on The Jewish Views Goodbye <laughs>